This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 33, through chapter 14, verse 20. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. And behold, Ahijah... The prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves and some cakes and a jar of honey and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of, your, of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have, ca and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free, in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam, as a man burns up dung until it is all gone." Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For only he of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim 
provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tizrah. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which was, excuse me, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And before we get started, I want to recognize um, a couple folk. Um, I try to do this, especially when we have visiting pastors. Uh, we have Reverend Mark and his wife, Amy Corbett, with us today. Raise your hand over there. Um, and he is an RUF campus minister in the Lynchburg, Virginia area. And they are visiting, checking out Christ Central because Lynchburg needs a church like this, you said. Okay, good. Um, and so he's just checking us out, seeing what's going on. Kelly and I met with them on um, Friday, hung out. They have their kids, Jameson and Caroline, with us today. So good to have you, Mark. Good guy. Uh, say hello to him when you um, see him today. Um, another pastor in our denomination. As we continue in our sermon series uh, through the book of First Kings, let me stop and say, I'm sad my friend Mr. Bobo's gone. Aren't we all? And as I wrote you guys in the letter, it is good for us to mourn. God calls us to weep um, when we lose somebody, um, like Mr. Bobo especially. But to celebrate with him, celebrate his life, how Jesus found him. And now he's translated, y'all, into kingdom of, of life, into the kingdom of everlasting life and love. And I praise God for that and praise God for him. And he will be missed. I think about Mr. Bobo. He never missed an opportunity to be at a church event, right? He never missed. He's always there serving in the way he was capable of serving, which was those lollipops for those kids. And um, I think about just, again, um, the way he served, how he was committed how he served and came even though he was in pain, suffering. Uh, sometimes he felt like he didn't have enough food, you know, all, all those kind of things going on. And this church stood up and, and cared for him and, and, and gave him food and, and, and came alongside of him. Let me tell you, if we had half the commitment of Mr. Bobo, of people in our churches, this city would be changed for Christ. And this world changed for Jesus. And this is from a man who didn't have much, but gave much. Um, so let us remember that and be encouraged by that and how he changed the lives of many. So, so we continue in our sermon series to the book of First Kings. We're going at a clip of, of about one lesson from each chapter. And today we turn our attention to chapter 14 and the continuing demise of King Jeroboam king of the northern kingdom. I say continuing because last week we saw in chapter 13, as was read a little bit, that King Jeroboam's reign would be cut short according to a prophecy from God. 
cut short because though God had generously promised and then given reign of over 10 of the 11 kingdoms of Israel, he had the north and then two tribes remained in the south. Jeroboam still turned to other gods, to idols, a golden calf at that, which if you know escape from Egyptian slavery through the desert Israeli history, a golden calf is a straight slap in God's face. Jeroboam doesn't hold up or turn back on his false worship, so neither does God on his promised judgment that the lineage of King Jeroboam would be wiped out in the northern kingdom rocked by invading and pillaging by neighboring world powers. To say the least, because of sin, as we've read through this whole passage, both individual and communal sin, like our own world, there is lots of suffering and sadness and dash hopes in this passage. And if you didn't already know it, there is a standing bad prophecy, not over only Jeroboam, over, but over you and me, the Bible says. Because it tells us what? That the wages of sin is death. And not just death as in a dirt nap death, but death as in judgment by God kind of deadly death. And there is not one of us that is not sinful, right? That is not guilty before God and how we treat him and ourselves and each other. And at the same time, there is not one person in here who is not damaged goods living somehow in the shameful wake or exhaust or, or dirt of someone else's sins. We all stand before God and in this world as sinners and sinned against, or as in this story, proud in our self-righteousness or humiliated by a world of unrighteousness. We need God's grace for both our sinful pride and our humiliation. Here's a lesson and help about God's grace this passage is giving us. First, that God's grace is often hidden to us. And secondly, God's grace is only revealed through and by him. Hidden to us, revealed through him. So how is it that God's grace could be hidden from us? Well, again, for you note taker, subpoint A, God's grace is often hidden from the proud, and subpoint B, often hidden for the humiliated. So Jeroboam has received this prophecy that his legacy, that includes his secession, his lineage will, will come to an end because of his sinful idolatry before God. And the Bible says this in the beginning of verse 13, going into chapter 14, verse 1. It says this. After this thing, this is after the prophecy and all this stuff going on, he was told. Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Anyone who would, this is like getting an ordination certificate online, anybody who would. He ordained to be priest of high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. And verse 1 says this, At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. It is apparent that God has already begun to judge Jeroboam as his son Abijah gets sick. Now back then, if you got sick, 
It wasn't just about taking a sick day, right? You might take the day to start looking for a burial plot or planning a funeral because there were no MDs and antibiotics and medical know-how. A stomach virus back then might take you out. And the flu for sure might have meant that's it. So Jeroboam, obviously aware of his guilt before the Lord and the signal of that guilt and the sickness of his son, the heir apparent prince asked his wife to disguise herself and go to God's prophet, not, not, not his bootleg prophets he had produced, but a real, authentic, bona fide one to possibly get a good prophecy from the prophet for his son. Maybe, right? He can get a reversal of the prophecy if God could be tricked. Yeah, I said it. If God could be fooled, right? If God could be hoodwinked and manipulated, maybe Jeroboam's fortunes could change. Maybe Jeroboam could change God's mind and and make God heal his boy. And in the comedy of errors, right, that the Bible often is, Jeroboam's wife, dressed up like a peasant, finds herself in front of a blind prophet. What are the chances, right? You're trying to trick God and you go to a blind prophet? Jackpot! For sure they would win the hand with a blind dealer. House always doesn't win. They have a chance. But look at verse one, at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick, and Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah, the, the prophet, is there who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, she can make it real good, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did it, Right? She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, Come in! Wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. And then this terrible judgment comes forward from the prophet. Let me make something clear here. God is not the one with the problem in this story. He's not blind. He's just being God as he always is, omnipresent, omniscient, never failing, always keeping his word and promises and even judgments and ways. So God is doing him right? He is being himself, and that is bad news for Jeroboam's prophecy of doom. But Jeroboam's doing him too, right? Just being the same old proud Jeroboam who somehow misses it. Jeroboam sees God, and the prophet is possibly, like the prophet really was, being blind or turning a blind eye to his heart, to his real guilt, to his sin. And yet it is God who sees and is hidden, and Jeroboam who is blind and who is exposed. Like with Jeroboam, God's grace is often hidden. From the proud. And by proud, I mean like Jeroboam, believing you can be good enough 
or self-writing enough or manipulative in your behavior enough to be holy enough to turn back and trick and appease and pay off and perform away the holy requirement and judgment of God. Which would mean that you believe that you and I believe if we think we can out-righteous or out-trick or, or put on enough good covering, then believes you think that you can take God off his game, that you can beat him at his holiness with a self-righteous juke or, or moral crossover or, or cover it with enough good deeds or, or acts of mercy in the community or doing enough to hurting people or be all religious by coming to church on Sunday morning. Maybe that's you today. God ain't fooled. Or sing loud enough or even raise your hand enough to fool you, right? To fool yourself and others enough that God is convinced as if he ain't seen you clearly or rightly. And we all know and feel guilty before the Lord. So we all try God, right? That's right. Though we do a good job of hiding it deep down, Every single person in here or out there knows and sees and feel and have signs, right? Maybe not the sickness of a son, but something in our lives, in our world. Just, just turn on the TV. Just, just pick up the newspaper. Just think about your life a little hard, right? Things ain't right, and you ain't right. But often in our pride to hold on, possibly to our lifestyle, to stay in control, to not have to break up with that person we love so much, to not have to be all broken up or broken down before God and others, at his mercy and become, you know, like those sappy, all lost and shouting and snotting up, crying church people, right? We want to keep our idols alive. We want to stay strong. We, we want to stay in charge. We want to stay on the forefront. We will treat God like we do our idols, like we do everything in our lives. Sometimes we will try to get over on him and cheat God of true repentance, of true admission of our guilt and saying, we did wrong, and what would you have me to do and be, Lord? No, we want God to change according to our righteousness according to how we see things, and you're blind. According to how we see him doing it, and it don't work that way. The Bible says this. No one is righteous. Even the good doers, right? And when that passage was written, written about no non-righteous, he was talking to people who had the Old Testament memorized. Right? No, not one Jew or Gentile, real religious, real holy, going on church on Sunday, doing all the right things, won the neighborhood award for being the best person, being in the paper, whatever. Not one is righteous. And it says this, that God sees all that we have done and will not leave the guilt and the guilty unpunished. Yeah, that's the kind of God we have. You know what it means that when that and when we seek either freedom from guilt, feelings, or healing from our own brokenness, sorry, and our own righteousness and moral charades, it means God's grace is hidden from you. And our actions and non-actions of repentance prove it. 
If you're seeking to be godly without repenting and accepting God's means of salvation, then you don't really see and possibly don't really know the grace of God. Because there's only by grace that God withholds his punishment and judgment or heals us from sin or makes us righteous, but not by our put-on or performance. God is full of graces. We will soon see, but like Jeroboam experienced, it is hidden. His divine favor and help is hidden to and kept from the proud and self-righteous. But there's some other hidden grace in this story. Last week he saw and talked about in short, and the end of chapter 13 that we just read talked about how the whole house of Jeroboam will be cut off. We saw how Jeroboam's idolatry and disobedience and pride didn't just affect him, but the whole kingdom, and especially his family, were going to be harmed and hurt by his sin. But we see how this is true immediately in verse 1, that his son Abijah gets sick. But look at what else, who, what and who else gets humiliated by Jeroboam's sin. Look at what the prophet says to his wife when she visits, picking up where we left off in verse 7. Okay, we're going to dig in a little bit. We're going to read this, all right? So hang in there. I'm long-winded too. Just hang in there. This ain't me. This is God speaking right now in the Word, okay? So let's just, just hang in there. Verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which is right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images and provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam. Hear, hear this now. Every, every male, both bond and free in Israel, and, we burn, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord God has spoken it. Arise, therefore, speaking to the queen, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam um, shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of the good land that he gave their fathers and scattered them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram, provoke, ashram is a type of idol, um, provoking the Lord to anger, and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Okay, yeah, a lot of reading there. There's a lot. But I want you to focus in on an interesting thing beginning in verse 9 until verse 11. You know the proper translation of verse 10 when it talks about every male? Actually reads this way. Everyone who urinates on the wall. Pastor Brown, please don't be vulgar. I can't help it. The Bible is in this instance. He's trying to make a point. God is being vulgar to make a point about their sin. 
It actually reads in the King James, urinate is actually not the word. Think about the word for when you're super angry. You are okay. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to get beeped online. And you know what dung is in verse 11. Yeah, I'm giving y'all a real behind the scenes, right? Scholar version of the Bible. The Hebrew. It's NC-17. Y'all didn't know the Bible was NC-17. That's why children go to children's church. Just kidding. Here's what's being communicated. The Bible is saying that every male associate Jeroboam will be viewed like dogs, right, who urinate outside. That they act like dogs before God, and worse than dogs, they will be treated not only like dogs, but worse, like dung, right? In other words, you know, back then, dung poop was used as fuel. The Bible is saying, all those associated with Jeroboam will be set ablaze and be fuel for God's anger. God is going to treat them like you know what and rage against them in a shameful, condemning way. They will be humiliated as a people, family, and nation. But that's not humiliating enough to have the dogs and birds eat your body means not getting a proper burial. It means no one will claim you. There's no one left to claim you. There's no money to bury you. There's no one fit with anything enough to afford to claim you. You are their shame. You are lower than a dog if you become dog food. But to be bird food means that this judgment is not an accident. The image is a war image of dying in a field and birds eating unburied soldiers. God has already explained that he's going to use an army to take out the rest of the northern kingdom later. Like the reed shaken in the water in verse 15, they will be a nation moving around floating at the wind of the current and uprooted a sign of coming invasion and exile. But it all means that God himself will go to war against them and their sin and leave them dead in the streets and in the fields to humiliate them the way they, their sin has humiliated them. That this is unmistakably the result of God's judgment against Jeroboam's sins. Sins that pulled almost everyone else into it. In fact, it is a whole nation who were suffered destruction and exile. One of these fun passages this morning. But it's easy to miss one of the most significant parts of this judgment. Jeroboam's wife and son. Do you see the story of Jeroboam's wife? The Egyptian princess who is in this society is probably forced into marriage as a deal between two world powers. Is sent by her husband to do his bidding. He sends her like the wimp and punk he is to face his bad news, to make her take off her royalty, to have her treated and act like a peasant, to be shamed, to face his sinful actions. She is humiliated and oppressed by Jeroboam, her husband's sinful pride and idolatry. And she has to go into the scariest place. She is put closest and first next to the cutting blade. It is like she is being shoved out to face the monster first, right? She has to hear the bad news and then go back home knowing that when she steps back into the city, her child will die. And then Abijah, 
the son. A child, the Bible says, falls sick and dies. Doesn't have a chance due to his father's sin. The queen and the child, along with all of those simply associated with Jeroboam, shows us how God's grace is often hidden, right? For those who are subject to the sins of others. Hidden for the humiliated. I'm talking about the oppressed, who some of you understand, who by no will of their own are in the family. Who are married to a fool, right? Whose daddy or mom were crazy or spiritually off. This is some of your stories who were oppressive and abusive. Or, or maybe you're in a country under a leader who is a dictator. Or, or maybe in a country that enacts or allows things to happen that will hurt or harm you. And maybe make it harder to get government and aid and so that the rich won't be taxed. Maybe it is being a woman, a minority, undocumented. Maybe it was being abused or disrespected or violated, simply humiliated by someone else's sin, by someone else's pride and arrogance and evil, humiliated by the unrighteousness of the world around you. It's sad enough, whether proud or not, we all are humiliated. Sinned against by a fallen world and people, neglected or forgotten or leaned in or oppressed. Maybe mom and dad made you be the grown-up so they didn't have to grow up and face their mistakes. You're the scapegoat or at fault for your spouse's problems, right? Face it. We live in an unjust merciless world of brokenness. And sometimes God's grace like for the queen and child and for us is shrouded. It is hidden. It is not obvious. It's foreign to us. The other day we were painting the house and Kelly was talking to me. We were looking at some stuff going on in news. And she was like, this is hard. The gospel can be hard to believe when you look at things going on. When it looks like things are just going to get better and the powerless and the weak and the subjected keep getting trampled on over and over. And how we talk about God's grace, but it is hidden. It is not obvious. It seems to be missing for those who are suffering humiliation. It seems like God's prophets are blind. I want to be clear on something that is hard for Christians to admit. Bad things happen. To all people. And good things happen to all people. The proud and the humble both suffer from sin. The orphan and the widow and orphans and widows, uh, metaphorically and really because of sin and function, and, and functionally may remain that. Because we live in a broken world. That is oftentimes broken because someone else dropped the ball. Where is God's grace in this? It's not that it is not there. It is just hidden to the proud. It's sometimes hidden for the humiliated. So where is God's grace when you need it? God's grace is revealed and given only by him. Subpoint A, it's revealed to the proud through his righteous humiliation. And subpoint B, it's revealed for the humiliated through his glorious exaltation. Let's look back at the story. Verse 1 again. That time, Ahijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself. 
And she goes and she disguises herself and brings the loaves. And then back down in verse 5. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Ahijah the prophet, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her, When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Now, there's something in this story that Jeroboam knows rightly but executes wrongly. He knows that we all know what we all know if we can and are able to look deep down. We can't go before a holy God for ourselves being our true selves. The proudest, proudest of us, the most righteous of us know this. We feel this. So we try to approach God again with our works, with our manipulations. We do it in an attempt to shield ourselves from God's holiness, to shield our sin and brokenness like Adam and Eve in a garden. It is our fallen nature to put on a mask, to hide, to throw out decoys, to act, to create drama. Some of us to be quiet and camouflage, right? Before a God that we know we are guilty in front of in a world we know that is broken and some of us have gotten good at self-righteousness we've made a life of being idolatrously fake but why fake when God reveals a way to him by grace the Bible says Jeroboam sends out his wife to face the judgment to face his judgment to make a deal to represent him but hide her association with his guilt so that there possibly could be favor from God. It's amazing how the scripture works. Because God's grace is revealed in the actions of the queen. Did you know that? Because like her, the Bible teaches us, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. That we are sinners, all deserving God's judgment for our arrogant ways, and we have a sentence hanging over our story. We are headed to fulfill the prophecy of divine judgment. But Jesus shrouded himself like the queen did in this story. The royal divine God took on human flesh. He came looking like a peasant and joined himself, masked himself with our story, and went and walked into our dilemma and faced God for us, standing in for us, wearing the mask of our sin on his sinful life. Jesus, like the queen, faced and received our bad news for us so we can know and experience the good news. And like the descendants of Jeroboam, Jesus was treated lower than a dog and like dung, he was burned by God's wrath on the cross so you and I can find favor by faith and be pleasing in his sight like the son in the story to be children of God standing in the favor of God as we stand in Christ and what he did. You know what that means? You and I can come from behind our curtain. When we are hidden in Jesus, we don't have to hide our brokenness from God. We can go boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that Jesus has already faced the bad news for us so we can hear the good news of God's mercy to us. We don't have to hide our brokenness from God and from each other. I like the hymn, And Can It Be, that says, No condemnation now I dread. 
Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own own. My proud brothers and sisters, join me. Repent. Take off the mask and repent. Admit your fear and brokenness and sin. Admit your sickness like a favored child and take the righteousness and writing power of Jesus as your own. But there's more good news in this story. Though he's described as being pleasing to God, Jeroboam's son Abijah still dies. And the nation and his people, God's people, will still suffer. And it will be filled with sad, depressed, impoverished women and children. All the men are going to die in his family. Israel as a country, as we'll see the history, will plummet into poverty and unjust legal systems and unfair lending and slavery and bad labor laws. Where is the grace for the humiliated when brokenness continues around them? And in their lives. I want us to look one more time. Back at verse 5. So she comes into the blind prophet. And it says, And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. And then look at verse 13, jumping ahead, talking about the son Abijah who dies. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam, of his household, shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. At first, this does not look like grace, but look carefully. The oppressed and those sinned by others are shrouded. It's always like this in society, right? The people who suffer are in the dark or in the corner, right? They're shrouded, they're covered and defined and powerless like the sick child or, or, or someone, a, a woman oppressed doing the sinful bidding and abusive demands and behavior of her husband. And I mean for the queen, right? To come like a peasant as someone who's truly a queen is to have her dignity, her true dignity uh, covered and demeaned and demanded into oppression by her husband's sin. But here is the grace of God. He knows who she is. <laughs> and the child, who he is, the blind prophet, the Bible says, knows her by her footsteps. The Lord knows the life she has walked, y'all. And the Lord knows why and what put her in that untenable position and who is oppressing and who will be held accountable and who actually holds life and death in their hands. And this is what she finds out. God sees. God sees her struggle. God knows her story. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Come in, wife of a sinful, oppressive man. Come in, this woman who's been traded around between two countries. Come in. God lets her know in his grace that she is not hidden, 
even though she's oppressed by someone else's unrighteousness and terribly hurt by it. And the same can say, be said about the son who dies. When it says that God found something pleasing about the boy in verse 13, it points to the fact that the child had God's grace on him, that he had faith that was from the Lord. Maybe he had a profession of faith as a young age. Maybe he walked out like a, you know, in this Baptist church at five years old. I don't know. Maybe he believed in God. Maybe he's a covenant child like Milo who was just baptized. But he belonged to the Lord. And even though he died, God paid attention. With divine fatherly grace, he saw him. He saw his faith. God, in the midst of all the unrighteous feelings and falling, blind to the one, was not blind to the one who belonged to him. Abijah and the queen's suffering was not because God's grace was not there. But God's grace is not always easy to see when sin is so heavy and damaging in our lives and stories. But God's grace for them is revealed and that he sees and knows and remembers and accounts for them. They are not lost and especially the son is not lost and hidden and covered up away from the Lord under the world's unrighteousness. Let me tell y'all something. Even if your family is messed up, and all that is meant and means for you and your children, or right now as a teenager or young person, even if in this world you are low on a totem pole, you or, or have a silent voice in your situation or you're oppressed or, or shrouded by someone else's sin and demands, whether you only cry in the dark and away from people in fear that you or your hurt don't matter, God in his grace, is not blind to you. Like the prophet, man, it looks like God doesn't have eyes. I'm telling you, it looks like he can't see. But the Bible says that he turns from the proud and sees and seeks and put his attentive affection and grace on the humble and on the humiliated, on the broken and the abused and the poor and the sick and diseased and the enslaved and the dehumanized. And every single person in this room fits in that category one way or another. God, by his grace, sees and he's attentive to the needs of the broken. And so as believers, as the church, mercy ministry, mercy ministry that says, hey, look, God's grace sees you. God recognizes you. It's not like an extra thing. It's part of our story that we were broken, that we were sick, that we were forgotten. We have all kind of histories and stories. And part of that is that amazing grace. He saw us. And so we go to a world that thinks nobody sees them, that nobody cares. The government don't care. My mama don't care. The man who did this to me don't care. The one who left me with all these children don't care. The one who did this to me don't care. God sees and he cares, and it's the church's job. It is our testimony, our living testimony to go to the world and say, guess what? God's grace may be hidden to you, but it is there. But there's one more thing I want you to see here. And God revealing his grace to humiliate it. So, last point. Look at verse 12 through 14 with me. It says, Arise, therefore go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord. 
the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Then jump down to verse 17. It says, Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the good Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Ahijah the prophet. Called my dad this morning to make sure I got this right. On his tour, he'll talk about. He runs Gala Tours of Charleston. Great tour. Have to give him a plug because I've used so many family stories. He says I'm going to owe him later. How'd you use me today in a sermon? I know you did. I want to get paid for that. So check out the tour if you go to Charleston, Gullah Tours of Charleston. <laughs> but he talks about the burial custom, burying the body, west to east, east to west, right? Not north to south. And, you know, in Charleston, uh, we have our own kind of syncretistic voodoo called Root, and that kind of thought if you're buried north to south, it meant you weren't going to come to see, meet the Lord and that you'd not, you weren't buried restfully, but that your soul could keep haunting people. They, they got a lot of ghost stories in Charleston. But the reason you were buried, a believer, if you're considered a believer, that churches would bury you west to east, facing the east, because it is believed that Jesus would come back from the east to raise from the dead and take those who died as believers away to heaven with him and out of the grave and away from this fallen world. Abijah was buried, the scripture is telling us, in a way that said he will rise out of this life. A life of oppression and death. Everybody else buried and the dogs eating them? No. But the one who is buried and mourned rightly is buried in a way that says that he's going to raise out of a life of oppression and death and unrighteous on him, even though he lived through it of it most of his life sick from the world's sin. Even though all of that was true, it could be assumed and assured that God would raise him out, out of the oppression and pain the world sought to bury and keep him in, but that God would put an end to and bring him into new life. Now this thing gets real good, right? The prophecy told the queen that when her feet enter the city gates, the boy will die. And in verse 14, it talks about an invading king sent by God who will come judge the nation's sin. But keeping the queen again in the role of Christ's suffering for us shrouded in our humanity for sinners. And God's invading king being Jesus in his glory, this is good news. Because the Bible teaches us that when he, Jesus, steps foot back into this world, through the metaphorically, metaphorical east gate, when he comes back, those who died with and for him, unlike the queen, will not die, but the opposite. They will be raised to new life out of oppression, out of orphaning, out of sickness, out of slavery, out of brokenness, out of pride gone wrong, out of everything that oppressed them, out of historic systematic racism and sexism and sexual brokenness partially caused by abuse and neglect, out of being forgotten and overlooked and simply treated like a dog by the world for whatever reason, even those of us 
who are powerful and proud who have become mask wearers because once we were abused and neglected, right? God's invading king of glory will break back into this world and turn back sin, Satan, and a humiliating world for all times, and those in Christ will rise again. I think about my brother, Mr. Bobo. As long as I've known Mr. Bobo, he's not had much broken in his body, in his life, man. He got hurt on a job, collecting disability most, if not all the time I knew him. And you can look at a life like that and you can say, see, it didn't work out for him. I am here to tell you from the testimony of Mr. Bobo's life in his mouth, he was buried in Christ, and when Jesus steps back in, he will rise to meet him, and all the hurt and pain and sorrow and depression will be gone. What that means if you, is you can take off the mask. You can live from behind the wall, from under the oppression, under the oppression from under a history of messed up stuff that was done to you that no one saw or knew or cared to know or bring justice, cry out to the Lord who loves you and long for God and King in Jesus who is already on his way back to deliver you and me. And as a church, we work with him out of faith in him to break the back of sin, Satan, and the world. We pray and walk and work and reach out as the oppressed for the oppressed. We pray and walk in this world as those who look for Jesus to come from the east and break the sky open. We hide in Christ and we seek his grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for delivering us. I pray that your grace would be revealed to those who kind of live with it hidden right now. Just hard to see. Where's mercy? Where's justice? Where's peace? It's you. I pray right now for those who don't know you or who may have just given up on you because things are just so hard. Lord, there is piles and piles of abuse and sin and neglect and people being pushed to be successful. Rejection. All kind of stuff in marriages. One person sinning against another. Children being ignored. Mom and dad too busy or not there. You see and those who are in you, even if they lay sick in sin, you look upon them with pleasing eyes, with favor. I pray that you would 
they would know that right now. Save those who don't know you, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.